Okay, we are continuing our study together in chapter 22 of our Confession of Faith, which deals with the subject of religious worship and the Sabbath day. Now, we completed last time our study together of paragraph 1, which dealt with the regulative principle of worship. We saw that the duty to worship was revealed by nature. That is, every person knows that they are supposed to be worshiping God. Um, And then we saw that the proper method of worship, however, was revealed only by Scripture. And that we can't come up with a proper method of worship just based on general revelation or based on our own thoughts or ideas. That our worship has to be formed and shaped by the Scriptures themselves. So that we offer to God nothing as worship except that which he has specifically authorized us and uh, ordered us to offer to him. So that leads us then today to the second paragraph. And the second paragraph deals with the proper object of worship. It deals with the proper object of worship. And it tells us two things. First of all, it tells us worship is to be given to the Trinity alone. Notice paragraph 2. Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone. Not to angels, saints, or any other creatures. So God alone is declared to be the object of the worship, and everything else is excluded as potential objects or recipients of worship. So worship is to be given to the Trinity alone. And then the second point the paragraph makes is that worship is to be offered through the mediation of Christ. It says, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but Christ alone. So it's telling us that now, since the fall, we cannot approach God in our own persons. We can't just waltz into the presence of God and say, here I am. Um, doesn't work. We can only approach God through an intermediary or a mediator. And that mediator is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is only through him that our worship is acceptable to God and finds um, uh, acceptance in his sight. So those are the two points. All right. So what we want to do together then today is explore this paragraph, look at the biblical basis for its assertions, and understand its application to ourselves. So in considering together then the proper object of worship, which is the subject of paragraph two, uh, what we want to do is, is to recognize this paragraph addresses the question, who is to be worshipped? And... How is that worship to be offered? Now, in many religions, there are multiple objects of worship. Uh, In pantheistic religions, for example, they have numerous gods, all of which, each of which, are to be worshipped. And, in fact, even in Roman Catholic theology, there are multiple objects of worship as well. Roman Catholics worship images, statues, um, relics, saints. They worship Mary. Um, They worship crucifixes. Um, There are a whole variety of objects and people 
other than God that worship is rendered to. Now, this idolatry is forbidden in the first and, of course, the second commandment, uh, which says, the first commandment, of course, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then the second commandment, uh, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor worship them. And so... Um, the Catholics, of course, ignore the second commandment with reference to images. They eliminate it, in fact. They go from the first commandment to the third commandment, and then they take the tenth commandment and divide it into two. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, commandment number nine in their order, and commandment number ten, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. And the reason why they do that is so they can eliminate any reference to the second commandment and thus not arouse concern over the fact that they perpetually violate it by setting up objects of worship, statues of saints, crucifixes of Christ, um, uh, etc. Uh, the use of relics, which are, um, they've got supposedly a piece of wood that is a true piece off of the cross, and these things are all uh, venerated. Now, God expressly forbids the use of any kind of competing object of worship uh, in terms of, of bringing worship to him. Uh, in Exodus 32 and in verse 5, we have the story of the golden calf. Now notice uh, in Exodus 32 in verse 5, uh, when Moses had gone up to the mountain and the people came to Aaron and ask him to um, make them uh, some kind of a god to worship. Uh, he did so, and then, of course, he described this golden calf that he made as Jehovah. Notice... <clears throat> Verse 2, Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears, brought them to Aaron. Verse 4 of Exodus 32. And he received them that their hand fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation, Tomorrow is a feast to Jehovah. So what Aaron did is he introduced the use of an object in the worship of God and called it um, um, Jehovah or said that this golden calf was a means of worshiping Jehovah. And uh, that veneration and and obeisance and worship was to be offered in its presence. And of course, we know what happened. Moses came down from the mountain. Uh, he was very angry. God was very angry. The Ten Commandments were broken. Uh, the people were, were severely uh, punished for this transgression. And so time and again, we see Israel uh, taking and making or erecting other objects of worship other than God himself. So this is something that um, the Bible expressly and clearly and unequivocally uh, forbids. Now let's notice then first of all this morning 
that worship is to be given to the Trinity alone. Worship is to be given to the Trinity alone. Now, I've already alluded to the first scriptural proof for that um, assertion that's in our confession, and that is the first uh, commandment. When God says, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That is, you will have no other gods in my presence before my face is the idea. And so um, God will not tolerate uh, the worship of any other God alongside him or even subordinate to him. Uh, He says, there will be no other gods. I am the exclusive single God. And then in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus reiterated this principle. You remember when he was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And the devil came to him and said to him, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And you remember what Jesus' reply was in Matthew chapter 4 and in verse 10. What's that? Shema. Yeah, right. Okay. It says, yes. All right, I got it now. Then Jesus said to them, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So, um, yeah, quote out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so, uh, once again, um, Jesus was declaring, there is no suitable object of worship except the Lord himself. No one else ought to be offered worship, including Satan. And then, of course, finally, we run into the passage in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. When John was so overwhelmed by all the visions he had seen and all the wonder of them, uh, that it says in Revelation 22, verse 8, that I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. Then said he unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. So even an angel who was being worshipped said, stop that. You're not to worship me. You're only to worship God. So when we look at the words of Moses in the first commandment, we look at the words of Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness. We look at the words of angel in, in Revelation chapter 22 in verse 9, it's obvious that God and God alone is to be worshipped. Now, our confession says that um, this one God is manifest in three persons. Religious worship, it says, is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him, singular, alone. So it recognizes that there's one God, Him, But this one God uh, eternally exists uh, in three persons, which all share a single essence, the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, what our confession is saying is that any one of those persons is a proper object of worship. 
And while typically we worship God as a whole, uh, we may worship God the Father individually, and God the Son individually, and God the Spirit individually, and that's entirely appropriate to do uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that when you worship one of them, you're worshiping all of them because they share a single essence. And the other is, is they are each equal in their attributes, in their essence, and in their nature. And so therefore, they are all equally worthy of being worshipped. So we can worship the Son. We can worship the Holy Spirit. We can worship God the Father. And that is not only permissible, but entirely appropriate. Now, notice, if you will, John chapter 5, verse 23. We looked at this passage um, a couple of weeks ago. For some reason, I've forgotten what right now. Um, but um, in John 5, uh, Jesus has made the Jews really, really mad because he has said that he is the son of God the Father. And they said, well, you're making yourself equal with God. And he says, in essence, right, <laughs> I am. And notice what he says in verse 23. He says, all men should honor the Son, even as, or just as, or in the same way as, they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son, honors not the Father which hath sent him. And so Jesus is specifically saying the same kind of honor, worship, veneration, reverence, praise that you would show to the Father, you need to show to me. And so Jesus was thereby declaring it's appropriate to worship me and it's appropriate to worship the Father as individual persons and that we're equally worthy of, of, of worship. And then, of course, in Matthew 28, in verse 19, when Jesus is giving the Great Commission, he says, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So each of those persons are equal. Uh, each of them are to be um, invoked. Uh, in the act of baptism, which is an act of worship, uh, as well as obedience to the living God. Because in baptism, we're bringing glory to God's name by declaring symbolically what he has done on our behalf uh, in the process of salvation. So to worship the various members of the Trinity is entirely appropriate. Any questions at this point in time? Okay. Our confession goes on to say not only that religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to Him alone, which we've proven by the words of Jesus, Him only shalt thou worship. And the first commandment, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt know the gods before me. But then it, it, it's, it starts excluding things from worship. It says, not to angels, not to saints, and not to any other creature. Now, we've already seen a passage in which we're not to worship angels. Remember the one in, in Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, where 
John fell down to worship the angel. The angel goes, stop that. <laughs> Don't do that. Worship God only. Okay. There's another uh, verse in Revelation 19 and verse 10, which in essence says the same thing. Um, in Revelation 19 in verse 10, um, it says of John, um, and I fell at his feet to worship him. And of course, he's talking about an angel here. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. <laughs> I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have, test have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So here he equates Jesus with God. It's right after the marriage supper of the Lamb. And um, of course, this angel which is conducting him around and showing him all of these things. Uh, he's just so overwhelmed that he, he has a problem here with falling down and worshiping his guide. And uh, we need to be careful not to worship our guides, no matter how wonderful they are in showing us the things of God, but rather fall down and worship the God that they're showing us. And uh, so, uh, and then there's another passage, Colossians 2.18, book of Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. And here, Paul says, with reference to the, the Gnostics and their perversions of worship, let no man beguile you of, a of, of your reward in a voluntary or self-imposed humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Now, it seems apparent angel worship is a problem. And in several places, it's addressed in the scriptures. And of course, in our day and age, um, it's, the fad has kind of passed now, but a couple of years ago, there was a big deal about angels. And people were always talking about their angel that looked out for them, and angel statues were for sale, and angel emblems, and, and uh, angel bumper stickers, you know, don't drive faster than your angels can fly. And, and then there was a TV program of some kind called Touched by an Angel or something, where this angel appeared and did stuff. Um, I never saw the TV program and watched TV, but um, it was a big deal. And it was like angels. Yeah, everybody likes angels because they don't make demands on you. They're just big, powerful guys that look out for you and take care of you and, and um, that um, are not really intimidating or threatening because they don't you know, pass judgment on you and cast you into hell and all that good stuff. Um, so we need to be aware of, even in our day and age, substituting our trust and confidence and thus our worship uh, in anything or anyone other than um, God himself. Uh, angels exist. They are servants of God. They're sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. But we have nothing to do with them directly. We have to do with God directly. And then he's the one who sends angels to do whatever they're going to do. But we don't pray to angels. We don't look to angels. We don't trust in angels. We trust in the living God. Okay. Do you have a comment, Dave? Well, it's easy for me to uh, not bow down and worship a stone or a tree or a golden calf or even an angel having come out of Roman Catholicism or a cement statue of a woman. But I think the hardest one would be the worship of our 
we struggle with the most because we tend to be a culture that is hungry for heroes. And when we find, finally find a man of integrity, a man of honesty, what would be the evidences that we had stopped worshiping Jehovah and actually started worshiping our guide? How would we protect ourselves from that? How would I evidence in my own heart that I was now worshiping my guide instead of my Lord? Well, I think one of the ways is you would start to render to the guide that which belonged only to Lord, and one of those things would be, um, uh, um, what's the word I want? Um, implicit obedience, okay? For example, the Roman Catholics, in essence, worship the Pope in that they render to him implicit obedience. Uh, what he says is infallible, what he says is authoritative, and there is no appeal uh, above him, beyond him, uh, or apart from him with reference to his pronouncements. So I think any time you start treating a, a, a spiritual guide, whether it's a book that someone's written, or whether it's a minister, or uh, whether it's um, just a spiritual mentor, uh, I think one of the marks of doing that would be that you would take their word as being final authority and unquestioned authority and that you would not be like the Bereans who searched the scriptures to see if those things uh, were so. <clears throat> I think another mark of, of doing that would be um, looking to this person's example as being an infallible guide as to how you, know, you were to do everything. So it would be not only looking at his teaching as infallible, but also looking at his behavior and setting this person up on a pedestal to where they could do no wrong. Um, you know, I, I saw once, I knew of very personally, uh, a Protestant uh, elder uh, in a church in Sacramento who took the word blameless. That was one of the qualifications for elders and, and equated it with sinlessness. And basically... You know, as the elder, he was saying, I am blameless, therefore I do nothing wrong. And he could um, not ever be challenged as to the legitimacy of any of his behavior or conduct because, of course, that would be a threat to his blamelessness and thus his qualification to be an elder. And so he, of course, completely misunderstood the meaning and application of the word blameless um, as a qualification for elders. So I think, you know, rendering uh, infallibility to their teaching, rendering infallibility to their conduct so that they can't ever be questioned uh, would be a mark of worshiping one's guide. And, you know, like you're saying about the Pope, you know, if, if he spoke, or, you know, he didn't bother looking at the scriptures, the Pope has spoken, you know. Right. And it gets right back to your thing about angels that, once again, you know, the Pope's not on this, on this so if we can just, you know, follow somebody who has no idea what we're doing in, in, our, in our attitudes and, and motives and heart, it makes life a lot easier all of a sudden. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's like we saw the children of Israel wanted a golden calf. They wanted a visible God. And, um, you know, people can, can make people into their golden calves. 
and uh, that's a danger. Um, you know, you see this happening to Paul where uh, he and, and, and Barnabas went into this town and they healed this guy that was lame in their feet. You remember in Acts 13 or 14, one of the two, I think it's 14. And uh, he healed this guy. And, and you remember the, the pagan priest brought out garlands and they were going to worship him. And they said, the gods are come down to us. And, you know, they called uh, Paul, um, you know, uh, Jupiter, I think, and, and Barnabas Mercury or something like that. And, and he goes, no, no, stop, stop. Don't worship us. You know, we're, we're just uh, men like you. And then, of course, some people came from the other town. And, and then, you know, 10 minutes later, they're stoning them to death. And, you know, that's ever the lot of spiritual guides is that on the one hand, you know, they run into people who want to worship them. And on the other hand, they run into people who want to stone them. And, you know, in the effort to not um, make our, our spiritual guides an object of worship, um, oftentimes we can go to the other extreme and make them an object of contempt. And we don't want to do that either. Um, so there has to be this balance. We recognize, you know, they're good and valuable and helpful, and, um, but they're not infallible, but they're also to be, you know, shown proper respect. So um, it's, uh, it's something that, that, you know, a proper guide like the angel said, you know, don't, do, don't go to this extreme. You know, don't go to that extreme. You know, here's who I am. I'm of your brethren. So, Dave, I, does that answer your question? Okay. Did, did you have anything to add to that that you've seen? Well, I've never met anyone that thought their pastor was infallible, but I have met a lot of people that thought that their elder or pastor or whoever was a center of all spiritual wisdom and insight. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, so we are so deceptive and wanting to find something solid to stand on, we tend to make idols out of those clay feet. And we endanger our leaders when we do that because they are not asking to be worshipped, but we sometimes have a tendency to overcredit the clay feet that serve us. Yeah. That's our problem, not the Sure, sure. You know, the funny thing is, in my ministry, I've never run into that where somebody's given me too much credit. What I run into is people don't give me any credit at all. You know, that's my main problem. I mean, no respect. I mean, somebody's been saved for two years, thinks they know about as much of the Bible as I do. And that's, you know, what I run into constantly is this rebellious attitude that says, you know, who do you think you are? Um, you know, you've been saved for 33 years. You've been a pastor for 22 years. But really, you don't know anything, do you? And that's the thing I run into a lot, you know, is the stoning end of it as opposed to the worshiping end of it. And, um, but the worshiping end does occur. I've seen it with my own eyes. And I, where you see it a lot is where, you know, ministers encourage that. And um, they actually cultivate that attitude in people. And that's what this guy in Sacramento was doing. Of course, that's what the Pope does is, uh, you know, they do set themselves up as the golden calf and invite, you know, the implicit trust and those kinds of things. And uh, any responsible minister will, will be like the angel. And if he sees any tendency, that'll say, stop that. Tom? I think I've seen that with like uh, Spurgeon. Yes. On 
Yeah. Yeah, same thing happens to John Calvin. If John Calvin said it, it's, 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 that's it. I mean, that is the final court of appeal. Max? I was just going to say, that's what was going on with Terry. You know, we talked about leaders encouraging worship. Yes. Yeah, and they said, he's a god, you know, and he said, right on. <laughs> yeah, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think that, that worshiping our guides comes from sin on our part in that we want a visible person to tell us everything to think and do and say because that relieves us of the responsibility and hard work of having to um, uh, do our own study and make our own decisions. Uh, and on the other hand, it's the result of sin in the leaders who would encourage that and, uh, in fact, cultivate that attitude by setting themselves up uh, as being the ultimate and the final authority um, without uh, justifying their positions and their behavior based on facts, logic, and biblical principle. Um, so uh, that's, that's where, where those problems arise. Now let's turn to Acts 10. And we've looked at several examples of efforts to worship angels. Now let's look at the example of an effort to worship a man. Um, this is the story of Cornelius and his household. And you remember Peter had the dream of the, of the sheep being let down and being told that, you know, what God has cleansed, he shouldn't call common. And, uh, of course, Cornelius had his dream and was told to, to send some emissaries to get Peter and bring him so he could come and preach to their household. And it says, um, regarding Peter and his companions, verse 24 of Acts 10, And the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. So here is, in Roman Catholic theology, the Pope, right? The, the chief guy. And, and, and the chief guy, the highest man, you know, the biggest wheel that ever lived, says, Do not worship me. And so here he's repudiating. Uh, any notion uh, of worship. Now, what the Catholics do is, is they typically don't worship men who are alive and breathing, though they virtually did that with Mother Teresa. Um, but once they die, then they do what they call um, beatifying them, which is elevating them to the level of saints which then makes them suitable objects of worship. And um, so they tell us that we are to pray uh, uh, to the saints uh, and ask them to be mediators and intercessories uh, between us and God, uh, thus giving them the attributes of being able to be all hearing, all knowing, all seeing. Because if you're going to hear the prayers of millions of people all at once, um, you can't be an ordinary mortal. Um, you can't be a limited being. You have to have the capacity to hear millions of people all at the same time uh, individually. Now, um, what we see in the New Testament is we see uh, apostles dying 
for example, James died, right? Okay. Do we ever see anybody offering prayers to him or venerating him or elevating him? We don't see that at all. Uh, Stephen died, right? The martyr. Uh, after he died, do we see anybody invoking his name or praying to him? We don't. Okay. Now, what the New Testament fails to do, the Roman Catholic Church does, uh, with the result that um, men become objects of worship when the best of men, namely Peter, said, don't worship me. And the New Testament church had no practice of invoking the name or praying to the best of the departed saints. It's utterly silent with reference to that. And in fact, it explicitly condemns it. And so... Um, in Romans 1 and verse 25, it describes the evil of the worship of men. And uh, it says in Romans 1 and verse 25 that they changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. So what you find people doing in Roman Catholic theology is worshiping the creature, namely people who have been beatified or exalted to the level of saints. And, uh, you know, creatures are prayed to, creatures are invoked for protection, uh, creatures are treated as God. Now, the Catholics say, oh, we're not worshiping them, we're just venerating them. Well, that's a distinction without a difference. And when you see them, you know, kneeling down and kissing the feet of a statue, that's worship. I don't care what label they want to put on it. So the point is, is that worship is to be given to the Trinity alone. Any three members of the Trinity are suitable objects of worship. We're not to worship angels. We're not to worship people. We're not to worship any creature. We're just to worship God. Scott, you had a comment. Yeah, I have a friend who's Eastern Orthodox, but he's also very Catholic, and when he was trying to explain why they ask the, the saints to pray for them, it's, it's no different than if, like, if I ask you, I say, hey, Max, I'm having time this week, will you pray for me? And, this, and, and the only difference is, is that you're here and they're there, but it's the same thing, to, to, to ask these saints to intercede for us and to pray for us. And, I, I, you know, it's, I can see it. He believed it, and so I just let go. And, but I mean, I could see the, the fallacy in that. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to explain. I know, I'm, I know you know what I'm talking about. Sure. Dave? Yeah, the argument that I would have in that is that they have now made a, a saint, a person who's in heaven, like God, and that they're assuming that he is omnipresent. Hey Joe, I'm Carpenter, I need help on this, you know. How do I presume that he is omniscient, that he knows my prayer, that he's even listening? That he can hear it. I have now created him into a God, presuming him to be omnipresent and omniscient and beckon, you know, at my beckoning call. And only God is at my beckoning call in a respectful way. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Yes, exactly. The difference, Scott, is that when I go to you, Scott Hall, and I say, Scott, will you pray for me? You're alive. You're in my immediate presence, and I'm the only one talking to you, and you can hear me. Okay? When I say, St. Joseph, okay, assuming we're talking about Jesus' stepfather, he's saved, he's in heaven, he can't hear us. In fact, it says in Ecclesiastes 9, the dead know nothing with reference to what goes on in this earth. The, the dead who have died and gone to heaven, they don't see what goes on down here. They don't hear what goes on down here. They don't know what goes on down here. They're completely cut off from what's going on here. So consequently, they cannot hear our prayers. They don't reach that far. And as Dave said, if they were to hear our prayers, they would have to be present with us. See, if you were over in Afghanistan, you know, I couldn't say, Scott, pray for me. I can't yell that loud and you can't hear that good. And so that's the problem, number one. And, and of course, number two, um, not only are they not with us and able to hear us, but then um, they have no capacity to do anything for us. Nicholas? I was just going to say, moreover, when Scott asked for me to pray for him in this life, I can hear him not only when we hear each other, but when I do pray for Scott or anybody else on earth, my prayer is, Lord, will you take care of this and this and this for Scott or Trip? The point is, my object of prayer is directed towards God even on this earth. It's never directed towards Scott. Yes. And when one dies, the prayer switches in Roman Catholic theology. It's not as if it's the same thing. Prayer to saints on earth. You don't pray to saints on earth. But when a saint, quote, dies in Roman Catholic theology, then they become the object of prayer. Right. It's not even the same thing. Exactly. Because I'm asking you to pray for me. I'm not praying to you. Correct. So and, then, and then asking you to pray to God after I pray to you. So it's a whole different ball of wax. Calvin? I was just going to say they turn the saint into a mediator rather than into a fellow Christian brother who's praying to Christ. And Christ is the mediator. When the, like our example here, Christ is still the mediator when I pray for Scott. But when Christ drops out of the picture, right. which is it takes the place of Christ. Right. Right. Scott? The, the two examples that stand out in my mind is, is James, which says the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Let's say no, by nobody in heaven. And, and, and the reference that we do have in heaven just says that the Spirit intercedes for us. You know? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. When we're praying and we can't even come up with the words ourselves, the Spirit will intercede on our behalf. Yeah, yeah, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 there, right? Yeah, good. Okay, well, our time is gone. Um, let us be careful not to unconsciously fall into worshiping uh, anything other than, than God himself. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have set yourself before us as the only worthy object of worship. Father, thank you that we do not worship men, but that we worship the true and living God alone. And Father, we need no other objects of worship but thee. Father, you are more than sufficient to be the recipient and the object of all of the worship of all of the people, of all of the ages with all of their heart, and there is no need for anyone or anything else. Lord, deliver us from the worship of ourselves, setting ourselves up as little gods through our pride. Help us, Father, not to worship others, setting themselves up, them up as ultimate authorities. Uh, 
placing implicit faith in them, but Father, help us to worship God alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.